In last week's study, we met a man named Abram, and we learned that Abram was someone who was seeking God but did not yet know God. And so God revealed himself to Abram, but not only that, God also chose Abram to become the father of an entire nation of people that would go on to become the Israelites, and he gave them a very special piece of land and promised that land would belong to Abraham's descendants, and that land includes the area of modern-day Israel. And in addition to this, the Lord promised to bless Abraham in incredible ways and make his name great, and the most important blessing that would come to Abraham would be the fact that the Messiah, Jesus, would be born through the family line of Abram, way down the line. And yet, despite all this, we saw last week that Abram's first few steps of faith were not bold, but generally reluctant and fearful, very much like our first few steps of faith many times. And when we ended last week's study, we found Abram in Egypt because he had fled there when a famine had struck the land that God had called him to. He had fled there rather than seeking the Lord and asking the Lord what to do. This week we're going to continue Abram's journey of faith and we're going to find that his faith and spiritual maturity, they've really grown over the years. He's reached the place of trusting in the goodness of God's character and that's really changed everything and we're going to see that. So let's jump in. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 13 verse 1. It says, then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south. So whenever you leave Egypt, which is always a picture of the world in Scripture, whenever you leave the world and move up to where the Lord wants you to be, you're moving up. Whether you go east, west, north, south, you are going up. So when you leave Egypt, you're always going up. And just to avoid any confusion, because the verse can be a little confusing when it says he went up from Egypt and then it says to the south, the south is the name of an area, just like if you were talking about the American South, you could actually go from Mexico City to the south in America by going north, if that makes sense. When they use the phrase the south in verse one, it refers to the area known today as the Negev Desert, the desert that is just south of Jerusalem and that is in between Jerusalem and Egypt. So that's where Abram is traveling toward and through. He's actually heading in a northeasterly direction. Now please note that there's, there's no record of Abram building any altars while he's in Egypt. There's also no record of God speaking anything to Abram while he was in Egypt. And that's usually the way it is because when we run to the world to try and meet our needs and solve our problems, when, when we choose to camp out and stay in places that the Lord doesn't want us to be, God is usually strangely silent. Our spiritual life seems dead and lifeless for some reason and we just can't seem to figure out why as though it's a great mystery. But I still encounter this all the time as a pastor, I encounter people who are not walking with the Lord, doing things they know the Lord would not have them do, and they can't figure out why the Lord might not be speaking to them. And so that's probably why Abram doesn't hear from God while he's in Egypt. But now he's heading back toward the land God had called him to. He's getting on the right track now. Verse 2, Abram was very rich, underline very rich, in livestock, in silver, and in gold. So God has just been doing what he promised Abram he would do. He's been blessing his socks off. Verse 3, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, underline at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there, and then underline at first. What do we always say when the Bible is redundant? It wants us to notice something. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. You might recall from last week's study, Abram built this altar when he was last camped in this area. And so when he stops there again, it's waiting for him. And he worships the Lord there once again. And I've recognized something in my own life and in the life of others that if we will build altars, if we will build habits of worship throughout our life, we will find ourselves reverting back to those habits of worship when we pass through that same season or moment of life again. If, if in a moment of great happiness and blessing you will stop and thank the Lord, 
you will find yourself being reminded to thank the Lord every time you have a moment of happiness or great joy. If when you are in some type of crisis, you will pray and fast and seek the Lord, you will find yourself drawn back to that same habit next time you go through a similar situation. If you'll build those altars, those habits of worship, you'll find yourself worshiping when you pass by them once again. However, the converse is also true. If you run to sin when life is good and easy, if you run to sin when your marriage is under stress or you feel lonely, you will find yourself running back to those same sins over and over again every time you pass through that season or moment of life or emotion. You know, they say the way the brain works is that the skills and, that we acquire, the things that we know, uh, the things we learn how to do are all related to synaptic connections in the brain, synaptic pathways. And so they tell us that even if you were to try and learn a new skill as an adult, you would have much greater success going back to something that you dabbled with as a child. So example, if you took even one year of piano lessons as a child and as an adult you wanna learn an instrument, you would most likely experience the most immediate success by going back to the piano because even though it's for lack of a better word, like, like a trail in the forest that's grown over, there's still a little bit of that synaptic connection there. And when it comes to habits of worship and habits of sin, the same is true. When you get under stress, what are you gonna do? You're going to go back to the path of least resistance. There's gonna be, if you imagine yourself in a forest, a lightly worn path or a path that you just have to move a couple of bushes out of the way to see. And is that path going to be a habit of worship or a habit of sin? You're likely going to revert to one or the other. And so the admonition of scripture is to build altars. Stop and take the time to call upon the name of the Lord. Make note of the things that he's done for you and then you will remember them. They will serve as reminders when you go through a similar situation or season. So make a note of this. Abram's previous investment in worship reminded him to return to investing in worship. Abram's previous investment in worship reminded him to return to investing in worship. We're all creating habits, one way or the other, habits that we're going to revert to by default. What did Jesus say to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, the church that had lost her passion for the Lord? I put it on your outlines, he said, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. So in other words, Jesus says, think back to the time when your relationship with me was really on point, when you were really on fire for me. Now think back to the things that you were doing and ask yourself, what were you doing then that you're not doing now? Because often we make things out to be a great mystery but the word of God says, listen, there's probably something you were doing then that you're not doing now. Were you in the word every day, but you're not now? Were you taking time to pray every day, but you're not doing that now? Were you involved in church, but you're not now? What's the difference? Go back and do the things you were doing at that time. It worked for Abram as he came to this altar, and it'll work for you and I. Verse five, Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And if you missed last week's study, Lot is Abram's nephew. And he's notable thus far because the Lord has specifically told Abram not to bring any extended family with him on his journey to Canaan. And yet, Abram allowed his ne'er-do-good nephew, Lot, to join him. Verse six, now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together for, underline this, their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was, please underline the word strife. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Lot has been blessed just because of his proximity to Abram. Lot isn't necessarily obeying the Lord, but he's just hanging out with Abram who's being blessed by God. He's in the right place at the right time. And so he keeps getting wealthy because some of the Abram effect is rubbing off on him. At this point, they both have a huge number of servants. They have enough just herdsmen. So they have enough servants who are dedicated to taking care of their sheep and cattle 
that there's enough of them to be a gang war between the two of them, is what we're being told here. Enough livestock that they can't share an area, they can't share a valley, they each need their own region. Now think back with me to last week's study for a moment. The Lord had told Abram, don't bring any extended family with you. But we know that Lot's father had recently died, and so Abram's father had sort of taken Lot under his wing and become a father figure to him. And that's what led to Lot being on the journey for the first part, when they went to Haran, when Abram's father came with them, brought Lot with them, and Abram went up with them. Then eventually Abram's father, Terah, dies, and then Abram moves into this fatherly role with Lot. And Lot was a grown man. He was a wealthy grown man, but it would seem that Abram likely felt guilty about separating from Lot. And that's why he didn't do what God told him to do. Abram probably had thoughts like, Lord, how is it gonna make you look if I tell Lot that I'm supposed to separate from you. He's probably gonna think I'm a terrible person and he's gonna respond by saying something like, well then I want nothing to do with your God. And Lot might never become a believer. And what, what sort of witness is that gonna be? He's gonna be like, oh, you're such a great Christian. Great job, great job. Just abandon your family. So Abram lets Lot tag along. Abram doesn't end that relationship. He doesn't do what the Lord told him to do. And what is the result of Abram not ending that relationship with good intentions having him hang along? What's the result according to verse seven? One word, strife, strife, difficulty, arguing, tension in the relationship. I'll tell you what's not happening. Lot is not saying, you know what? I'm so blessed to be along with you, Father Abram. I just wanna know more about your God because you've been so good and kind to me. That's not what's happening at all. When the Lord tells you or I to end a relationship, we might think we know better than the Lord. We might think we're kinder than the Lord, more compassionate than the Lord. But when we disobey the Lord in the name of trying to help a person that the Lord has told us to separate from, the result will always inevitably be strife. It won't get any better. That's why the Lord was telling you to end the relationship. He was trying to protect you and them, and them. Because Abram's not being a witness to him right now. There's just strife, so write this down. When we don't separate from a person when the Lord has told us to, the result is always strife. When we don't separate from a person when the Lord has told us to, the result is always strife. One quick note, please hear me on this. Whether you're here or listening to this online in the future, I am not talking about your marriage, okay? God is not using this message to tell you that you need to separate from your spouse, okay? Please hear me on that. I'm talking about non-marriage relationships or friendships or ungodly relationships. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about your marriage. Don't be like, I knew it. Lord, I hear what you're saying. I will follow through. Don't do that, okay? Now in verse seven, it, you notice that it ended by saying the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. And the only reason that gets mentioned is because God wanted us to know that there were non-believers all around them. People who didn't know the Lord, who didn't believe in him. And when they were looking on and seeing Abram and Lot's herdsmen fighting, it wasn't a good look for the reputation of God. It wasn't a good testimony to those around them. And Abram seemed to pick up on that. In verse eight we read, so Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen for, and then underline this, we are brethren. We are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. This is very gracious, very magnanimous of Abram. He chooses the path of humility. He's the patriarch. He's the head of the family. He had every right to smack Lot on the back of the head and say, boy, you better tell your herdsmen to start acting right. You better go do it right now. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, listen, we gotta split up. We got too much stuff. God's blessed us too much. We each need our own region. You pick first, you go anywhere you want, and I'll, I'll go somewhere else. I'll go somewhere else. And in doing this, Abram is showing some real spiritual maturity that he's grown in the Lord over the past few years because he now understands there's no scenario 
in which he is going to miss out on the blessings of God because he humbled himself and cared about the reputation of God more than his own wealth and benefit. There's no scenario where that happens. And sometimes we don't believe that. Sometimes we find ourselves doing ungodly things because we think we need to in order to accomplish the destiny God has for us. Well, I know the Lord wants me to be married. I know he has a spouse for me, so I better go find one who doesn't believe in the Lord. What? That doesn't make any kind of sense. Well, the Lord loves to provide, and so perhaps the way he's provided is for me to cheat on my taxes. No, that's not the way the Lord has provided. You see, Abram understands that the Lord loves to lift up and bless those who choose the path of humility. So he knows, listen, if I put God ahead of everything else, God's gonna take care of me. Abram understands that being under God's blessing is worth more than any other piece of land or any position that he could occupy. And I would just share the same thing with you. Wherever you are, whatever situation you're in in life, being under the blessing of God is more important than any dollar number, any house, anything. I remember when I was 20 and I had, I had two job offers and I was trying to figure out where to go. I was gonna go to Texas or Kansas City and the Lord just sort of gave me a vision. It was this map and there were the two cities and the blessing of God was like this beam from heaven coming down on this one spot and God was saying, this is where my will for you is. Now you can go anywhere. You can go anywhere you want, Jeff, but this is where my blessing is going to be because the place of blessing is in the will of God. And Abram understood that that's how life works. He can go anywhere he wants, but the place that's blessed is in the will of God. And if he's in the will of God, then he can be anywhere and he'll be blessed. And he understood that. He absolutely understood that. Jesus would in fact declare the same truth when he was on earth. Jesus said it like this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Abram could afford to be generous. And so can we. So can we. We can afford to be generous. You know, I don't want to ruin the surprise, but I flipped to the back of the Bible and looked at the ending, and we're all rich in the end, okay? So we can afford to be generous at all times. Write this down. Abram dealt with conflict head on and with humility because he cared about God's reputation. He dealt with the conflict head on and in humility. That is the way to deal with conflict. You're not doing anything good for the reputation of God when you allow conflict to simmer under the surface. You gotta deal with it, and you gotta deal with it in humility so that God can bless that situation. Verse 10, and Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Note to self, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. So interesting side note here. This tells us that at this time, the area where Sodom and Gomorrah was built, which is likely around the southern end of where the Dead Sea is today, it's barren desert today, but it was once, according to the Bible, a lush green paradise, like the garden in Eden. And apparently that changed sometime around the time when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, which we'll read about in a few chapters time. But the idea is that Lot lifts his eyes and he's like, that's the place. That's the best place to take your cattle. That's the best place to live. It's got the best scenery. It's got the best nightlife. Everything's rocking over there. Verse 11, then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan and Lot journeyed east and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Lot looks out, man, that is the place I want to go. It just seems to get greener and lusher the closer I get to Sodom and Gomorrah. So he makes his decision based on what looks to be the best choice. And the problem is obvious. While we're told that Lot lifted up his eyes to survey the land, he didn't lift his eyes high enough. You see, he lifted his eyes enough to see everything on the surface level in the distance, but he didn't lift his eyes all the way to heaven. He didn't seek the Lord's counsel, the Lord's advice. He didn't ask the Lord what his will was. 
And we're going to see in just a few verses that Lot and his family are going to end up in a place of catastrophic danger, all because Lot made this massive decision about his family's future based solely on how things looked at the surface level. Man, thank God we'd never make that same mistake, right? You know, when we're making a big decision and we don't seek the Lord's advice or direction, it's usually because of one or two reasons. It could be that, honestly, we think we'll do a better job making the decision than God will. And you might think, no, I would never think that. But here's how you know when you do that. When you don't ask the Lord. When there's a big decision to be made in your life and the life of your family and you don't ask the Lord, it implies that you feel you don't need to, that I feel I don't need to. Either I can make a better decision than the Lord or at minimum, I can at least make as good of a decision as the Lord. That's the first reason we sometimes don't seek his counsel. Or secondly, we're terrified that God's will is to lead us to the place of misery and suffering because somehow that's good for us or something. Do you ever have that fear where if you were a teenager in the church, maybe you thought, man, I want to ask the Lord what he wants to do with my life. I want to tell him I'll go anywhere for him. No, I don't. He's going to send me off to some God-forsaken country to be a missionary. That was always the fear, right? Because we had this fear like, oh yeah, God's going to have me be single forever because God loves to make me miserable because that's good for me or something like that, right? I remember when I was, I was 16, I, uh, I decided I'm like, I'm like, I'm done. I'm not going to date anybody else. I want the next person I marry to be my wife. Lord, that's, that's my prayer. I'm not going to flirt or do anything like that. And even as I'm praying it, I'm thinking, I, I know how this ends. I'm going to be the 40-year-old virgin. I know that's exactly what's going to happen here. And three months later, I met Charlene and we started dating and the rest is sort of history. So that worked out good. But there's that little bit, even in those of us who know the Lord, who love the Lord, we have that little suspicion, man, if I, if I take this big decision to the Lord, what if he's not planning on taking me to the place of prosperity, what if this is one of those situations where he's, he's blessing me by shaping my character, by making me go through hell for the next four years? No, I'll, I'll just make the decision myself. So on the first point, if you're still in the place of thinking you can make a better decision than the Lord can, all I can tell you is that you're spectacularly wrong. I am spectacularly wrong when I think that. And I would urge you to reconsider your approach, lest the Lord have to teach you that your decision-making is not as good as his, because the only way he can teach you is by letting you make your own decisions and then realizing after the fact that it was terrible that you didn't seek the Lord. Far better is to follow the advice of James 1.5. It's on your outlines. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. I can't tell you how many of my prayers start with, Lord, you know me, you know I lack wisdom, and so you know I need your wisdom, so I'm asking for it. Lot thinks that he can make great decisions without the Lord, and that will turn out to be tragically, tragically misguided. On the second point, just please know that your Father in heaven is always out to bless you. He's always out to do what's best for you. He's always in the business of moving us from life to death, from curses to blessing, from hell to heaven. And if you're not convinced yet that the Lord has your best in mind, I would encourage you to spend some more time at the table of communion, just thinking about, meditating on, contemplating the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for you and I. Because it is impossible to be meditating on the thought of Jesus hanging on the cross, dying for you, and simultaneously have the thought, I'm not sure that God really cares about me. You can't do those two things at the same time. These two things are true. We need the Lord's wisdom and we can trust the Lord's character. Always, always, always. Verse 14, and the Lord said to Abram, now underline this, after Lot had separated from him, hey, what do you know? Suddenly the Lord is speaking to Abram again. After a long period of silence, the Lord speaks to Abram. So what changed? Two things. He got out of Egypt. But secondly, we just had you underline it. Abram finally separated from Lot, as the Lord had told him to all the way at the beginning. 
as we were just talking about recently in our Genesis study, when you feel like the Lord isn't speaking to you, it is good to go back and ask yourself, what is the last thing the Lord told me to do? What's the last thing he shared with me? And if we haven't responded to that, that's probably why the Lord hasn't spoken anything new to us. He's still waiting for us to respond to his first instructions, his first word. Abram finally does, and what do you know? The Lord begins speaking to him again, and here's what God says to Abram. Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are. So we read that Lot lifted his eyes. Now the Lord says to Abram, after Abram was gracious to Lot, now the Lord says to Abram, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are. Look northward, southward, eastward, and westward. Look all around you. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. So what you notice is that Lot chose what he thought was the best land and God says to Abram, you know what, I'm actually giving it all to you and your descendants forever. Yeah, including the place that Lot just went off to. And the reason I believe that God is still with Israel, the reason I believe the land of Israel still belongs to the Jewish people is because scholars have discovered something truly incredible about this verse. It turns out that in the original Hebrew, the word forever means forever. It's pretty staggering and I'd ask you to underline it. The Lord says it's the land that I'm giving you and your descendants forever. I don't know what the Lord could do to be more clear. I really, I really don't. Forever doesn't mean until I change my mind. It doesn't mean unless you keep your end of the deal. There is no end of the deal because we read last week there were no conditions in the promise that God made to Abram and there's no conditions being made right, right now. Verse 16, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, if a man could count the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. The Lord says to Abram, I'm giving all this land to you and your descendants, including the land that Lot just went off to take. And by the way, Abram, your descendants are going to be uncountable in number. Now don't forget at this time, how many kids does Abram have? Zero. Zero. And not only that, but last week we read the reason for that is because his wife Sarai is barren. She can't have kids. So write this down. God's promise to Abram seemed biologically impossible. It seemed biologically impossible. And we don't know if Abram was a full man of faith at this point or if he was like at the place where he had learned not to argue with God, but in his head he was like, well, then we better get something happening here soon, Lord, because I don't know if you realize this, but I'm no spring chicken and my wife is barren and you're talking about us having a countless number of descendants. He might have been thinking that, but he was at least at the place where he could go, that's great, Lord. So good. So good. I don't know if he believed it or not yet. We'll have to see as we keep going through our Genesis study. But what we also notice here is that God had an even greater level of blessing for Abram an even greater plan that he wanted to share with him, but he was waiting for Abram to take the step of obedience and separate from Lot. I really believe the Lord had been holding on to this promise and information to share with Abram, but he was waiting for Abram to pass that test and separate from Lot. As we mentioned at the end of last week's teaching, you know, we often think when we delay our obedience to God, we're getting away with something. We're getting some more time with, with pleasure or sin or something. But delayed obedience to the Lord simply means delayed blessings. It means delayed destiny, delayed development. It means you're missing out. You're not getting away with anything. You're just missing out on what God asked for you. The Lord told Abram, the land is yours. Go take it. It's a story for another day. But one of the great tragedies of the Israeli people is that they would only ever claim and take around one-tenth of the land that God gave to them. They would get tired of fighting battles and decide to just settle for what they had, even though the Lord had more. And to this day, Bible scholars speculate, and I agree, that were Israel to try and take any of that land that God promised to them through Abram, they would be successful. 
because God gave them the promise. And these scholars point to the fact that this is likely why Israel was able to so shockingly capture the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, the West Bank from Jordan, and the Golan Heights from Syria in the Six-Day War of 1967. Many people don't realize, how did Israel come to get those territories? Well, one, they were part of the land that God promised to them. And two, in 1967, they were attacked by all the Arab countries around them. They were attacked. And in defending themselves, they managed to take all of that land and seize it. And that's how they got it in the first place. And so the theory is that if they were to go and try and militarily conquer any of the territory God promised to them, God would be with them even today and they would take it. And I think that's likely true. They have God's backing that tends to be a pretty big advantage. Verse 18, then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and, and then underlined built an altar there to the Lord, built an altar. So because he had his memory jogged at that first altar he had built that he passed by again, he's now back in the habit of worshiping the Lord and we see that here in verse 18. We're just gonna keep moving into chapter 14 and I just need to point this out. You, you saw it right. We are doing two chapters today and I can already see the emails. Jeff, you've become a shallow Bible teacher. I knew this was coming, but this is still gonna be in depth. This is gonna be good. And we're just gonna blast through these first four verses, hopefully quick enough that you can't tell I'm pronouncing the names wrong. We read, and it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, that's Babylon, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlomer, king of Elam, that's Persia, and Tidal, king of nations, that they, these four kings, made war with Barah, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Balah, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Shittim, that is the Salt Sea, that's the Dead Sea today. Twelve years they served Shadorlamer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So basically, there are several groups of peoples, including the people of the city of Sodom, and they were being ruled over by a Persian king named Shadorlomer. And they got sick of it and rebelled. Verse 5. In the 14th year, Shadorlomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva, Kiriathim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazizon Tamar. So as the people of his kingdom start rebelling, this king, Shadorlomer, heads out and starts dealing with the problem militarily. Verse eight, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Balah, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Shittim against Shadorlomer, king of Elam, Tidal king of nations, Amraphel king of Shinar, and Arioch king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Shittim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. The rebellion doesn't go so well. Probably didn't print enough flyers. And so these rebellious kings, including the king of Sodom, end up running for their lives from this king, Shadorlomer, and his army. Some die in this region that's full of tar pits, while those who make it through flee for the mountains. And so the idea is that their cities, cities like Gomorrah and Sodom, are now left defenseless because all the fighting men of the city have either been killed or have fled up into the mountains, which is why we read in verse 11, then they, Shadorlomer's soldiers, took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So now we find out that Lot ended up going all the way to Sodom and making it his home. Remember back in verse 13 we read, the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord? That means that either Lot knew that before he settled in Sodom or he quickly figured it out when he got there. But either way, Lot chose to stay there 
even after realizing everyone in this place is incredibly wicked. So he didn't make his decisions based on what would be pleasing to the Lord. He just looked at the situation and said, which situation is gonna prosper me the most? Where am I gonna be the most financially successful? Where can I have the nicest house? And because he was thinking on such a shallow fleshly level, Lot thought, this is a great place to raise cattle. And he never asked the most important question. Is this a great place to raise a family? He didn't even think about it till it was too late. Parents, mom and dad, don't ever choose what you think will be the place of prosperity at the expense of your family. Do what's pleasing to the Lord. Seek his will in every major decision of your life. You see, Lot thought he was heading off to live in a situation that was gonna make him the most money, and he thought that's going to be the best thing for my family, for us to be as wealthy as possible. And instead he finds himself living at ground zero of a war between kings, and he ends up getting kidnapped along with his family and everything he has when the city is raided. So write this down. Lot put his family in grave danger by prioritizing prosperity over righteousness. Prosperity over righteousness. And many times you find that prioritizing righteousness leads to prosperity as well. But prioritizing prosperity never leads to righteousness. Verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his underlying 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So Abram gets news that nephew Lot and his family have been kidnapped and he springs into action. He springs into action, he's a good guy. When we talk about Abram's wealth, I want you to notice that we're told he has 318 trained servants. And Bible scholars tell us what that is saying very simply is that they were trained fighters. So it's not that this situation happened and then Abram was quickly like, oh, I gotta go buy some swords for my servants, stop washing dishes and start doing some sword drills. That's not what he does. Bible scholars tell us the implication is that Abram had his own private militia of at least 318 highly trained fighting men. And in the world at that time, you would have had to in order to protect the wealth that Abraham had. You simply couldn't have that much livestock, that many servants, and not have a way of protecting it. So the idea is he has his own private militia here. Well, not only that, but the number of servants he had at this point was so large, did you notice that these 318 trained fighting men were all children of other people who were also serving in his household? They were all born in his household, we're told. They're not his family, they're born to the family members of servants that he had. So he had so many servants that they had enough families among them that they were able to produce 318 men who went to serve in just the militia. So the implication here is, by any means, Abram had thousands, thousands of people in his employ and in servitude to him at this time. He was unbelievably wealthy. And these are just a few of the reasons that many point out that Abram was likely the wealthiest person on the planet at this time. Verse 15, he, Abram, divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. This is a very different Abram from the guy we saw last week who got his wife to lie and say that she was his sister. He's a bold fighting man now. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the woman and the people. So instead of saying good riddance to bad rubbish, Abram goes and rescues his nephew Lot and his family and all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who had been captured. This points to a significant growth in Abram's faith. He's gotten to the point where he, even he can't deny that God is with him. God's hand is upon him. And so he now begins to act like a man who actually believes that God is with him. He's not afraid to step out and take up a righteous cause and go and free family that have been captured. 
Verse 17, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shador Lomer and the kings who were with him. So the king of Sodom is heading out to meet Abram upon his return, seemingly to say, hey, thanks for saving everybody from my city. Now there is a view that the king of Sodom mentioned here is more than a man. His name, we were told back in verse two, is Barah, which literally means son of evil. At a minimum, we will find that he's being used by Satan. It's possible that he could be possessed by Satan, serving as a type of Satan, as Nimrod was a type of antichrist that we read about back in chapters 10 and 11. And this view has some credibility because before Abram reaches the king of Sodom, he would seem to encounter the counterpart to the king of Sodom, the polar opposite, someone else who's also more than a man. Verse 18, you're gonna wanna underline this. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and he blessed him. He blessed Abram and said, blessed be Abram of God most high. Then underline, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. Underline a tithe of all. So seemingly out of nowhere, before Abram can reach the king of Sodom, this figure named Melchizedek shows up. And we notice that he serves Abram bread and wine, or as we would say in New Testament vernacular, communion, communion. We notice that Melchizedek is both a priest of God and a king. We notice that he blesses Abram and Abram is so thrilled to be blessed by Melchizedek that Abram's spontaneous response is to give Melchizedek a tenth of all he has. Servants, cattle, money, everything. So who was this Melchizedek? Well, interestingly enough, his name comes up a whole bunch of times in the New Testament especially in the book of Hebrews. And so I'm actually gonna ask you to somehow mark where we're at right now, stick your bulletin in there, and turn with me to chapter seven of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Chapter seven of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And we'll start at verse one when you're there. I'll give you time to turn to your index and look up Hebrews if you need to. Chapter seven of the book of Hebrews, we'll start in verse one. And we read this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated, underline, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning, and then underline, king of peace. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And his title means king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. But check out what else Hebrews tells us about him. Verse three, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, remains a priest continually. Well, our list of suspects just got a whole lot smaller, to put it mildly. If you haven't figured it out yet, write this down. Melchizedek was a Christophany. He was a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, a moment in the Old Testament when Jesus takes on human physical form and appears to an Old Testament saint, a Christophany. Well, Hebrews keeps going, and we're told Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. For time's sake, we're just gonna skip down to verse seven. Now beyond all contradiction, underline, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here's the point that Hebrews is making. It's saying, understand how great Abram was at this time. He's likely the world's wealthiest man and had just proved to be the most formidable military adversary in the known world. Now understand in light of that how great Melchizedek must have been that Abram received a blessing from him and this blessing, being blessed by this Melchizedek, 
so thrilled and blessed Abram that his response was to voluntarily give a tithe of everything he had to Melchizedek. Unquestionably, Melchizedek was greater than Abram, the greatest man alive on the earth at that time. In Psalm 110, we're allowed to listen in on a conversation between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. And in Psalm 110, God the Father tells Jesus, it should be on your outline, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Now here's why that's interesting. It was extremely strange to Old Testament scholars, Jewish rabbis, to read that this Melchizedek was both a priest and the king. Because when God gave the law, God gave explicit instructions that the monarchy and the priesthood were to be separate. They were never to mix, they were not to cross over, they were to come from separate lines. The royal line would come from the line of Judah and the priestly line would begin with Aaron and flow through the Levites, the Levitical line, two different streams. So it was very strange when they would read about this Melchizedek guy who was both a priest and a king. And then it was very strange to these same Jewish scholars when they would read prophecies about Messiah and those prophecies would seem to talk about Messiah as though he was going to be both a king and a priest. And so they couldn't figure out how this could be and so they came up with this idea, well perhaps there are two Messiahs, one that's going to be political and one that's going to be priestly. And this is why you see at some points during the life of Jesus, them trying to thrust Jesus to take political action against the Romans because the Messiah they wanted at that time was a political Messiah. And they were thinking, well surely we don't need a priestly Messiah. We're being occupied by Rome. We need a political Messiah right now. And that's one of the reasons they resented Jesus for not taking political action. But what they all didn't understand was that Psalm 110 had prophesied that Messiah would not be a high priest in the mold of a human. He wouldn't be in the mold of Aaron. He wouldn't be in the mold of any Levite under the law. Rather, Messiah would be a high priest after the order of, as it says in Psalm 110, Melchizedek. Not after the order of Aaron, after the order of Melchizedek. And Paul, who I believe wrote the book of Hebrews, confirms this for us in Hebrews 5, 6, and 6.20, if you're a Bible nerd. 5, 6, and 6.20. In his first coming, Jesus came ministering as our high priest. And even today, he continues in that role. If you're still in Hebrews, turn with me to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.14. Hebrews 4.14. And this is what we're told. Seeing then that we have a great, underline the words, high priest who has passed through the heavens, who could it be? Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then flip back to Hebrews 7, verse 23. Hebrews 7, 23. It speaks of why Jesus is a greater high priest for us than any man could be. It declares, also, there were many high priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, speaking of Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. At Jesus' second coming, he will step into the office of king as he rules and reigns from the throne of David for the duration of the millennial kingdom. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a priest and a king. Incredibly, do you know who else is described in the Bible as serving as both a priest and a king? You and me, you and me in the kingdom of God forever. In Revelation 1, John the apostle writes, should be on your outlines. To him who loved us 
and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. And John will also mention this in Revelation 5.10 and 1 Peter 2.9 where we're called a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. As I've mentioned before, what we're destined to become in Jesus in eternity is so glorious it would be considered blasphemous by most Christians if I were to describe it to you. Abram's interaction with Melchizedek is also the first mention of tithing in the Bible. I know someone's thinking like, I knew you weren't gonna pass that up. So we see, (laughs) and as we've discussed before, there's always something significant when a topic is mentioned for the first time in scripture. If you can understand where it's first mentioned, you'll probably understand that issue throughout the rest of scripture. And in this instance, it's no different. When Abram tithes to Jesus, when he tithes to Melchizedek, we see that the practice of tithing existed in at least some form more than 500 years before the law was given. That means that the concept of tithing predates the law. This means that the first practices of tithing in the Bible were not ceremonial. They didn't happen because God commanded it in the law. They happened because Abram wanted to do it from the heart as an expression of gratitude and honor toward the Lord. So when tithing first shows up in the Bible, it shows up as a response of gratitude to Jesus. For what? for blessing us. Do you remember that? What does Melchizedek do before Abram ties to him? He blesses him, he speaks a blessing over him, and he serves him communion, the body and blood of Jesus. So are we still being blessed by Jesus? Absolutely. Should we still be grateful for being blessed by Jesus? Absolutely. Do we still need to be set free from materialism, from the love of money? Or because we're New Testament believers, Are we now impervious to the issue of putting our confidence in money instead of trusting the Lord? Is that an issue that we conquered long ago in the church? I don't think so. And that's why tithing didn't fall away with the ceremonial aspects of the law after Jesus' life and death. That's why even though Jesus fulfilled the law, we still practice tithing. It's a heart issue, it's not a ceremonial issue. Write this down. Tithing is a heart issue not a ceremonial issue. Abram tithes to, really get this, he tithes to Jesus. And that has never changed. Believers are called to tithe to Jesus, whether it was before the law, under the law, or after the law, the tithe has always been given to Jesus. And many times we forget that even though the church is where we give our tithes, the tithe is always given to Jesus. Please don't ever think in your mind at any point that you are giving your tithe to the church. You're giving it to Jesus. That's why you do it. And the Lord blesses you because you do that. And that's so important because whoever you are, if you're a believer and you've been around for decades, sooner or later, you will find yourself in a church where they will make some sort of financial decision that you don't like. Something. Might be a building, might be something small. You might be like, we don't need a TV that big. Do we really need coffee and tea? What is this? There'll be something that you disagree with. And it's so important to understand that we tithe to Jesus, to honor and bless Jesus because Jesus commanded us to. So that means that even if you're in a place where you're thinking, I don't like the decision that that church made, God still blesses you because you were obedient for your part. If somebody is being reckless and frivolous with the Lord's money, they will answer to the Lord for that. You won't, I won't. I will answer to the Lord for what I did with what he entrusted me with. So did I honor him with what he entrusted me with? Somebody else will answer for the question of did they do what the Lord wanted them to do with what he entrusted them with? So always remember that. When you tithe, you do it to the Lord, not to a person, not even to a church. Verse 21, now the king of Sodom, who shows up now, said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. 
So after his time with Melchizedek comes to an end, Abram journeys on and he encounters the king of Sodom who's come out to allegedly thank him for rescuing his people. And the king of Sodom says, we're so grateful, Abram. You know what? Just keep all of our stuff that you liberated. Just let me have our people back and you can keep the stuff as a reward for your services. And another reason that some people suspect the king of Sodom is more than a man is because the word for persons that's used there, nefesh, literally means souls, souls. So what the king of Sodom says to Abram is he says, give me the souls and take the goods for yourself. Which is giving us insight into how Satan operates. The reality is for him, what he really cares about is the souls of men. And if he can use goods and wealth and stuff to get access to the souls of men, that's all he cares about. He doesn't even care about this stuff. Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the underline possessor of heaven and earth. And I want to stop there for one minute because I found a clue in Abram's phrasing. He calls God the possessor of heaven and earth. Do you remember who just recently referred to God that way? Look back up at verse 18. It's the title that Melchizedek used to describe God to Abram as he was blessing Abram. And for that reason, I strongly suspect that Abram and Melchizedek conversed more than is recorded in scripture. And Melchizedek specifically instructed Abram not to accept any compensation from the king of Sodom. And we'll find out why as we keep reading. Verse 22 again. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Accept only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So it seems as though Jesus had told Abram, don't accept any compensation from the king of Sodom because I want you to trust me and only me to bless you and take care of you. So all Abram takes is the food that his people had already eaten because they were hungry and they were traveling back from rescuing everybody. When you honor the Lord with your finances, one of Satan's greatest tools, which is the stuff of this world, ceases to have a strong grip on your life. The king of Sodom, who was at a minimum being used by Satan to tempt Abram with wealth, had no power over Abram because that part of his life was already surrendered to the Lord. Abram trusted the Lord to be his source, not people, not anything in the world. So write this down. Because Abram submitted his wealth to the Lord, Satan was unable to lure him into death and destruction. Because Abram submitted his wealth to the Lord, Satan was unable to use it to lure him into sin and destruction. That's what tithing does. That's what honoring the Lord with your finances does, is it frees you from the temptation and the grip of earthly wealth and materialism. It's the exact opposite of what happened to Lot. And it's the exact opposite of what's going to happen to Lot again in the next few chapters. Abram's journey in the book of Genesis is a journey of faith. And so here in chapters 13 and 14, we see that he passed the test of trusting the Lord and putting him first in the area of finances. Now, if Abram hadn't passed that test, he wouldn't have been able to move on to all the great stuff that God wanted to do in his life that we're gonna read about in the coming chapters. He would have just stalled at that step, just like he stalled at the step of separating from Lot and couldn't move into the next phase of what God had for him until he obeyed the Lord. If Abram hadn't put God first in his finances here, if he had accepted wealth from the king of Sodom because he hadn't surrendered that part of his life to God, he would have been stuck there again on this journey of faith. Charlene and I tithe, always have, always will. God comes first in our finances no matter what. And I'm passionate about it. I'm passionate about my kids doing it. My kids doing it. And I'll tell you why. Because trusting the Lord with money is a test on the journey of faith that every single believer has to go through. We have to pass it 
And if we don't pass it, that's as far as we go on our journey of faith. You can go to conferences, you can keep studying the Bible, that's great, but you will not ever move to the place of trusting God with greater things and seeing God do greater miracles in your life because you're gonna stay at that test of faith. God continuing to ask again, will you trust me with your money? Will you trust me with your money? And it pains me so much as a pastor to see people get stuck there. I wanna see every single one of us moving into greater steps of faith than tithing. It's not meant to be the ultimate step of faith. It's meant to be one of the first because you can do it immediately as a new believer. You don't need to know the word of God inside and out to start doing it. It's not meant to be the ultimate test of faith. It's meant to be one of the first. And that's why I want my kids to settle that issue in their lives while they're still children. Over 80% of believers in North America will never pass this test of faith. Over 80%. Don't be one of them. God has more for you. God wants to do more through you. He wants to do more in your family. But you gotta trust him. You gotta trust him. And if you're not doing that, start. Start now. And I mean this seriously. And if you think I have an ulterior motive, then go to another church and tithe there. Because I would rather see you move on in your journey of faith than stay stuck at the same place because you're unwilling to believe that God will take care of you. I really would. It's that big of a deal. I'll wrap up with this. Before Abram tithed to the Lord, the Lord served him communion. That's not a coincidence. Because when we take the time to fellowship with the Lord, and remember what he's done for us. His body broken on the cross, his blood shed. When we take communion and we remember how Jesus has served us and how he loved us while we were still sinners. When we remember that, it's not hard to say, Lord, whatever you want, I'm in. Wherever you ask me to go, whatever you ask me to do, I'm in, it's yours. And so if there's an area of your life that you just can't seem to trust the Lord in, spend some time, spend some time in communion, fellowshipping with the Lord. Settle it in your heart that he loves you. He takes care of you. He's already met your greatest need, your need to be saved. And if he can do that, he's gonna take care of everything else. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This is not meant to be a message about tithing. This is meant to be a message about trusting God and growing in faith, believing God, obeying God so that we can move on to greater things on our journey of faith. I've shared this before, nothing pains me more than knowing a believer who's never been able to trust the Lord with their money. And then a crisis hits their life that demands much greater faith than that. And that Christian wants to believe that they now have the faith to believe that God can heal cancer or that God can find them a job. And I can't ever tell them this, but what I think is, I wish that were true. But here's what I know. I, I know you've spent years building up a track record of not believing that God could even make up 10% of your income. And now that the crisis has hit, you wanna believe that faith is a switch on the wall that you can just flick and suddenly be a great man or woman of faith. But that's not how faith works. Faith is built up by trusting God, trusting him again, saying yes to him, saying yes to him over and over and over. Faith builds upon faith. And when the crisis hits your life that demands great faith, the faith you have will be the faith you have. There won't be a secret reservoir to tap into. The faith you have will be the faith you have. And so what I want for every single one of us is I want us to be a church full of people of great faith in God who have a track record of years of believing God and trusting him with far bigger things than life can throw at us. And if that's not where you're at now, start today. Start building that track record of faith. Especially you parents, you're gonna need it for your kids. 
You're going to need it if you haven't needed it already. Build that track record of faith now so that it's there when you really need to call upon it so that you can stand with God and partner with him in faith when the moment comes. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? We're going to have a, a great opportunity in this coming time to take communion. I encourage every single one of you to take it. Take it and then spend some time meditating, thinking on the love of Jesus for you, the provision of Jesus for you. He provided himself as the sacrifice for you. And just determine in your heart that you're gonna honor God. If you know you haven't been honoring him in a way he's asked you to, repent. Ask his forgiveness. And then actually repent by changing that behavior. Begin to take those steps of faith and trust him. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your patience, Lord. That you don't give up on any of us. That just as, as Abraham went off to rescue Lot, Lord, you rescue us time and time again from our bad decisions. And invite us to step back into your will, into the place of blessing. And so, Lord, what we desire to be are men and women who are under your blessing, under your will in the place where you want us to be, doing the things that you want us to do with the people you want us to do it with. Father, we wanna be a blessing to you. We wanna be in your will. So I just ask boldly in the name of Jesus, if there is anything in any of us, Lord God, that needs to change to get in alignment with you, please reveal it, Lord. Reveal it with clarity because we don't wanna delay our obedience. We don't want to delay your blessings. We don't want to delay our destiny. We don't want to delay our purposes, Lord God. We want to get on with living for you. Walking in those good works that you've prepared beforehand, Lord. Doing everything we can to live lives that make you famous and bring you honor and bless you, Lord God. So we just invite you to do your work in us. And we thank you for your great unfailing love for us, Jesus. We love you so much, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.